Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? So welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Together with me is Stephen and Cameron. Uh, And this time I thought uh, we could try to discuss different scientific discoveries and what kind of influence this has had on our ability or the, the religious position in in the world. And I, I think that the, the Copernicus uh, revolution might be like a starting point and uh, what kind of influence this had on different religious position, especially in Christianity, of course, because mm. that's where it's, it's, it, this discovery started. So Stephen, yeah. what, what do you think? That's a, a great place to start. Another, maybe maybe we start a little bit earlier and then hit Copernicus because one thing that um, that no doubt had a, a major impact at the time of its discovery. We could go back a couple thousand years earlier to uh, one of the first recorded Greek philosophers. Um, who, who was it who who made the the prediction of the eclipses? Uh, was that Thales, who was famous for for predicting eclipses, um, which prior to that, people probably assumed that the world was controlled by spiritual forces, by the whims of the gods that were essentially unpredictable, that there was a kind of um, divine fiat at, at work in the world that made us human beings completely at the mercy of these you know, spiritual or divine forces beyond our control. And then you have this fellow coming along who noticed, oh, there's patterns in these in these natural events that people took to be actions of the gods. We can predict eclipses. And then we have uh, things like the Antikythera mechanism where where the the ancient Greeks you know took that predictability of eclipses and turned it into mechanisms that you could use. Um, to uh, to um, to make these these predictions, uh, and we don't know what use these 
these sorts of mechanisms were were put to, um, but uh, but no doubt they had a profound influence on how people thought about the world. You know, th this this may have been our, our first his historical uh, sort of record of this dawning understanding that there is a, a regularity, like a mathematical regularity behind the way things work, which was an opening to thinking about the world as not controlled by arbitrary forces, but controlled by things that, that our minds can comprehend and then manipulate and then leverage and make use of. But could I, cause I, I think that some of these predictions or some of these could also be understood as the human be being closer to the gods than the people who didn't have those predictions. I think in, in, in old ancient Egypt, the priest was those who also had the ability to foresee when, when the Nile was gonna flu or not. So, mm -hmm. so and also uh, Pythagoras and, and the mathematicians in, the, in, in Greece had also some kind of religious connection so I, I think it might be uh, changing some of the, the religious understanding, but maybe it, it just changed and it kept another way of uh, or the ability to, to be religious. That's a great point. Did, did it bring us up to the level of the gods or did it bring the gods down to our level? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what's the difference between the two? <laughs> you know, there was a kind of... a. a a closing of a gap, but which side moved, I guess, would be the question. <laughs> and and there is, I mean, this also reminds me of this, what is known as God of gaps, and the idea that uh, in the more modern apologetical position that religion has taken in relation to science, uh, the idea has been to show that there must be a divine, divine existence because science cannot explain everything and it's been those gaps that have sort of been been filled by God and of course this has been very bad for God because he is sort of squeezed out of these these spaces more and more as, as science uh, develops and that's why I, I know Stephen that you have um, uh, a, a different approach as a scientist to this which I have which has always been very inspiring for me that that instead of seeing uh, God as explaining things that science cannot. We, we go the other way around and say, you know, like that science is something that helps us better understand how mm. uh, God works. And I, I think that, it, I, I may be wrong, but I think that it was maybe for the first time, most clearly this was brought up in, in Islamic culture, where, where even something like, you know, I come originally from Iran, so Persian carpets are very, uh, they're world famous. And and even in the patterns that Persian carpets uh, have, one tries to geometrically and, and artistically show the 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 order that exists in the universe and and the infinity that exists. So so I think there already there was this idea that if we understand nature, if you understand science. It gives us good leads to better appreciating uh, divine creation. Could, could yeah. you also, Cameron, just to, um, just to when you mentioned the carpet, uh, could you explain the picture we have got for the um, for the for the 
profile of our uh, podcast. Yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, because the picture, thank you very much that you brought it up. That was very, very good. Yeah, the picture, I mean, uh, is actually from from Islamic uh, uh, ornament. Uh, I think it's actually from from probably interior ornamentation of a mosque, which exactly shows just like the carp. I mean, different forms of Islamic art were very geometrical and, and, and tried through geometry to portray divine order. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and this is all only half of the picture. Half of the picture, that's right. And, uh, and uh, the other half is a fractal, which is actually uh, showing how, how in nature you have order, even in what seems to be chaos. And, and we wanted to bring these side by side uh, to to show really this closeness of a religious and, and scientific approach and how they they can complement each other. But but still, there there are uh, there has been a lot of problem and even bloody fights between science and religious. And I I, I think mm -hmm. the Galileo Galilei and the Copernicus uh, revolution afterwards uh, was one of those bloody fights. Uh, Stephen, yeah, that was one uh, one huge closing of a gap, I suppose, was was Copernicus's theory that um, that gave a kind of order and structure to the universe um, that, that that again took things out of the realm of arbitrary action of the gods into the realm of um, something that has a kind of a mathematical clockwork regularity to it, mm. and. And that has started, and that triggered this cascade over the last few centuries of the gap progressively becoming smaller and smaller as we understand more and more of the physical universe around us uh, and are able to explain more and more of, of the of the phenomena that we experience. Although certain gaps notably remain, you know, the gap of how the universe, why the universe bothers to exist in the first place, the gap of how life emerges in all its complexity. So, so there are gap there are gaps for those who are still gap minded about <laughs> thinking about about matter and 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 spirit. But I think the 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 record, you know, over the last few centuries is 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 against that school of thought because the the gaps do seem to do seem to be shrinking. But but fortunately, we have you know, there are ways of looking at, at the world that don't that that affirm that kind of mystical spiritual quality of things without putting it in the gap um and it's these aren't new ideas but these ideas are as old as the gap thinking themselves you know I, i'm thinking of you know this this carpet uh, cami that you that you bring up the the persian carpets having the symbols of the universe in them the sufi idea which is also very much you know part of of, of persian culture there's a famous statement by rumi that says Dost thou consider thyself a puny form when within thee the universe is folded? And Rumi was echoing a much earlier and older idea that's ascribed to a, a, a mystical, prophetic, philosophical figure by the name of, of Hermes, uh, whose writings are, as far as we know, lo probably lost, but but statements ascribed to Hermes uh, exist uh, in the in 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 the Arabic literature. Uh, one of which is a short little um, a short little statement 
that be, that uh, is taken to be uh, the the secret of 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 alchemy, uh, and it begins with the statement that that which is above is like that which is below, and that which is below is like that which is above to accomplish the miracles of one thing. Uh, and so Rumi is kind of echoing this idea many centuries later, and this very much flies in the face of the God of the Gaps thinking because it says something about this correspondence between ourselves and the universe. Mm. So one would expect then to find the more one delves into the workings of the universe and conversely, the more one delves inwardly through spiritual practice, through meditative practice, through philosophical investigation, the more one understands the one, the, the more tools and leverage one has to understand the other. I think also that this idea that um, part of the universe, I, I think that was one of the central problem with that happened when Copernicus discovered that the, the, pla uh, the earth was not the center of the universe. And then this idea that above us was heaven and in heaven God was and below us was hell. And that's where yeah, the devil. And, and I think that there shouldn't be much problem actually to remove this thought of this, uh, the church thought of the earth as a center and make uh, the earth and God becoming part of the universe and not something only belonging to the earth. One one could look at the at the progress of our scientific understanding of the world over the last half a millennium or so as a progressive decentering of humanity, which we could think of began with a, a naive conception of us being the center of the universe, the center of everything. And then the Copernican revolution decenters us physically. So we're, we're now thrust out of the center of things and something else is put in the in the center. Um, and that decentering, you know, continues as we discover that okay, now the sun isn't the center of things, but maybe you know the center of our galaxy is the center of 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 the known universe. Before we discovered that there were other galaxies, and then suddenly our galaxy is just a mote of dust in a in a swirling um, chaos of of hundreds of millions of galaxies that and those are just the ones that that we can count so we get physically decentered all the way until we're just a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam in in Carl Sagan's fa famous phrase but that decentering is even more profound than that because when Charles Darwin finds that um that the the pathways of the of the emergence of species also follows a kind of uh predictive um regular not regularity because it's very chaotic but but follows uh, a a perfectly uh, natural explanation that doesn't require outside teleological forces humanity gets decentered i think even more profoundly because we're now no longer the the center of the uh, of the universe in terms of purpose we're we're now we now become something which is accidental something which is uh which we think of as uh, because because we're we're very human centered, we th we naturally think of ourselves as the as the almost inevitable outcome of things. But the the Darwinian decentering of of humanity 
uh, turned us into a um, turned us into an accident, and we're still coping with that a century and a half later, um, and we're still trying to come to terms with whether we are simply accidental and simply a mode of dust in a, in a sunbeam, or whether there is a way to think of us, our consciousness, maybe not our species, but our consciousness, which may be found elsewhere in the universe, as somehow still important in some way. Um, and that, and I think that's one of the fundamental questions behind this whole podcast, behind the, uh, the this whole tension between Athens and Jerusalem. You know, the, the more we understand the Athens piece, the more we understand the, the physical universe, the less important we seem. But the, the Jerusalem piece tells us we are important. We are not just important, but we are crucial. We're the keystone of the arch. We're the, you know, we're the purpose of the existence of everything. Um, and is there a way having sort of having shed these naive conceptions of the world that put us in the center in a very physical sense, in a very uh, in a very naive sense? Is there a way following the arc of of our under of our expanding understanding of the universe to return to understanding consciousness in a central way while um, while losing the the naive conception of it that that characterized our thinking in earlier times, I I I, per, I think this is such an important and key question that I suggest that we actually de dedicate a a, a specific uh, session to this very question, and I would like to maybe go back to this idea of um, the more general sort of influence of of modern science on on uh, metaphysical thinking and, and i think that to me anyway uh, as a layman in this field it's been very fascinating that uh, whereas sort of the earlier 18th and 19th century science seemed to somehow um, demystify the universe and say well everything is observable and and we can you know, see the Lego bits that put this thing together and whatever you cannot observe with your senses can be uh, discluded from any intelligent uh, discussion. And then it seems that with, with the Einsteinian uh, sort of uh, view to universe and everything that came with that, uh, all of a sudden, the universe sort of regained its mysticism. And it's very interesting that many of the not necessarily religious, but mystical thinkers of our more recent times are actually physicists. And, and I think the problem is that most laymen, and especially social scientists who don't really understand science in great depth, they still live in the worldview of ninth, early 19th century, uh, I'm sorry, uh, late 19th century and, and, and early 20th century sort of uh, view of science. Um, and you know, that you know only that everything is concrete and whatever is not concrete is not real. And that kind of a very, very naive view of, uh, of scientific view of reality, whereas actually science has long ago passed that. And, and uh, so in that sense, I think it's very interesting that 
that as science has developed, it has, I think, helped us to see this connection between Athens and Jerusalem. Because, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you, you would be able to explain this better, uh, Steve, as a physicist, but uh, yeah. I find that sort of... Yeah, I, I think that's exactly the case, but... No, because uh, we, we have discussed physics and natural science before, but this time I, I thought maybe we should also uh, focus more on uh, psychology and behaviorism. Ah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think also because uh, this the, the Darwin you mentioned and uh, decentralization of human being in in uh, in whatever we are, and that and then. Uh, uh, I think Freud had uh, maybe was one of those really uh, removed even uh, the center of human. I, I think it became difficult to talk about a soul and a spirit in human uh, after Freud and uh, um, especially with behavioristic uh, psychology and even some kind of uh, cognitive science like yeah, I've been reading Merlin Ponty for a moment, and he's focusing. He's like the the, the grandfather of embedded cognition, and and the, the, in this way of thinking, that you you might there are thoughts that I think doesn't give any possibility of a human spirit or soul, and I think that's maybe one of the biggest scientific movements that makes uh, a religious position difficult. Hmm. That, that was a very good point, especially since I think that what has also happened is that psychology has somehow replaced, I mean, or there has been this tendency for psychology to replace what formerly was understood as spirituality. So, so psychology is seen as the only sort of other dimension of human beings than our physical being. Whereas to me, psychology is quite obviously part of our physical being because it's something that emanates from our brains, which are which is of course part of our sort of physical apparatus. But it's very interesting. You, you, I think this is a very good point that you raised. I, I could try to, to explain it a little bit further because that the, the... There was a, a discussion uh, between Roman uh, Roland, that mm. he was one of the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, no, not Peace Prize, but Literature Prize winners, and, and uh, Sigmund Freud, and uh, Roland claimed that the the reason that human had a religious dimension was our feel this feeling he called the ocean feeling, the feeling that we are being part of something bigger that we are we are connected to the universe and to reality and uh, freud his explanation was uh, sub our subconscious and our uh, way of uh, growing up and he explained this ocean feeling that there was only the human being still uh, wanted to be hanging on to the breast of their mothers <laughs> and I, I think that's exactly these different thoughts and and how freud uh, removes every 
uh, he, he, he makes everything very, uh, how, to, how, how should we say it? It becomes very natural or very only part of, of what, what the environment brings into us. So we are more or less just response to our environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a reductionist tendency, which is seen yes. in, in all of the disciplines, um, which is a natural, I, I would say, a natural response to the runaway success of of science beginning with Copernicus going forward. That it's if if it's so successful using this mathematical modeling of the heavens, why don't we use it for everything else as well, um, all the way down to something as enormously complex as the as the human psyche uh, we we'd like to and and we still want to we still want to do that there's still a sort of inertia of this clockwork universe uh, you know the Newtonian clockwork universe that you know th that that people still think of when they think of science is that it's it's able to reduce everything to the to its physical components and explain away all phenomena in terms of those physical components. Um, but even, and moving away from the from the physics side of this, um, so something I've been looking at over the past few weeks are these fascinating videos on YouTube um, by, um, uh, by uh, and you can, you can check for these yourselves, uh, the DNA animations by Drew Barry. Uh, animations of DNA and ribosomes and so forth, um, and uh, and the amazing complexity behind how you know, the DNA is converted into into proteins in the cell. I think this relates in in the following way: DNA is the as we know the the basis for the human genome. It it, it defines and and what we are physically and constructs us on a, on a cellular level. But the, but we can't describe what DNA is purely in terms of what it does chemically. In other words, we we can't just say that um, that the explanation of how things work, even on a cellular level, is can purely be reduced to the mechanism of DNA having a particular chemical effect in the cell. We have to include the fact that DNA includes information. It codes for amino acids, which then are chained together to produce proteins. And it's the chemical effect of the proteins that work inside the cell that that give the sort of all the the, the physical uh, sort of the physical properties that that um, that life has. But DNA has this dual property that it it acts both chemically it has a physical presence it has energy associated with that as a solubility it has all these sorts of physical properties but in the sequence of base pairs in the dna it contains something else it contains something abstract something symbolic you know what the three base pairs code for an amino acid and a bunch of amino acids code for a protein this is language this is sort of the, the origin of, of language you know which is a symbolic thing it's it's words strung together to form sentences and paragraphs and, and a whole story. So even at that level, 
Um, I mean, not just talking, we could go in the direction of physics and quantum mechanics and so forth to get to consciousness and try to recenter consciousness, having been decentered through this, you know, centuries long process. But I think just the discovery of the chemical properties of DNA, looking biologically, there's a kind of inevitability that 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 one cannot describe the world solely in terms of the physics and the chemistry. Information comes in. What is that information? How does information sort of emerge in the in the um, in the in the in the evolution of things? There seems to be a kind of mystery there that um, that we haven't yet that we haven't yet fully understood. And, and somewhere somewhere there, I'm 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 convinced lies a um, lies a key to recovering the importance and centrality of consciousness. I know that's a big leap, but yeah. I, yeah. I think that the same, same I would say about cognitive science, they, they really try to understand everything of what's going on in the brain. And, they, and nowadays they, they, they say that we, um, when we get stimulus from outside, there is some kind of uh, global ignition going on throughout the whole brain, mm-hmm. emotional, logical, motorical, uh, all these centers, ethical centers, they, they, they are, or maybe we couldn't even call it a center, but it's, it's global. But still, there are no sign of who is editing it, mm-hmm. who is the editor of what of those signals that we are actually yeah, how, how how is it possible for for babies to to edit the signals of noise that goes into their brain and make them able to understand um, the the, sci- the the patterns mm. in the noise that makes it into words that they are able to understand and to read and to yeah yeah that's that's really fascinating, and and I I agree that I think this issue of consciousness becomes a, a key issue, and and perhaps here of course the classical question of mind and brain, but I, I would like to also uh, I'm sure you're familiar with um, with the work of Sam Harris, and he's an interesting figure because he he's a sworn atheist, but um, more recently he has. Uh, uh, studied even through personal experience this kind of um, meditative approach of consciousness and uh, and uh, sort of mystical uh, I would say uh, levels of consciousness which are not irrational but I would say they're supra rational and and he has come to the conclusion uh, although he says it has nothing to do with religion or God but that that human beings have this ability of of being conscious of and 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 experienced meaningfully something which is not cannot be just reduced to uh, rational and logical reasoning the way that we see the brain working as a uh, as that kind of a machine. So I think that's that's also fascinating. We we yeah. we have discussed uh, different. Uh, dimension in human beings before in this podcast and I think interpretation of Plato we, we often say that the, the 
the leader in human action should be rationality or logical thinking. But what you try to say, Cameron, if I understand you correctly, is that there there might be a different dimension, a, a more super rational dimension that maybe is more like the editor or the hmm. what is really the the human soul. Exactly, um, exactly. The yeah. human soul or the human mind, which to me are are almost synonymous. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that one way, I mean, one analogy that one could use is to think of the brain as the computer and the, the mind or the soul as the programmer. Now, obviously, a, a, a programmer needs a computer in order to be able to, uh, you know, show his skills and, and, and to actually implement the, the knowledge that he has. But uh, even if the computer should break down, uh, the programmer is not affected by it. And, and, the, and the computer is only reflecting the skills and the knowledge of the, of the programmer. And I think in this way, we could maybe think that, um, uh, yeah, the brain is a vehicle that manifests the, the powers of human soul and mind. But uh, uh, essentially, uh, our, our thinking, our awareness, our consciousness, and even, for instance, something that we call love uh, are more than just uh, electro electrical or chemical reactions in part of our body that are that we call the brain. This, this division of our brains into into hardware and software uh, mm. seems it seems like a really good analogy because I mean, again, going going to like DNA, it seems like DNA is both hardware and software and that. And that's uh, so we see that at various levels in, in the world, but it also begs the question, you know, if 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 our brains are hardware and software, then it leads to the question of well, there's a programmer out there somewhere, and then we have doesn't that sort of bring Cartesian dualism back in through the back door? Doesn't it then beg the question? Okay, well then, we've taken our understanding of the universe and we shoved all of our ignorance in a sort of God of the gaps fashion mm. to this entity, which is the programmer of the software of our brains. Um, and now we have to answer that question. You know, all the questions that we thought we were answering about the universe have now been sort of pushed one level back. And we really have to start asking, well, then where does the programmer come from? What is, and, uh, and how, it, how does it come to be in charge of the software and so forth? Maybe dualism, uh, ain't that bad? I mean, <laughs> I know that we, 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 we because we might d discuss what is actually the dualism. What what is the those different dimension in human? And I, I think also, I think in, in when I meet people today, that I think there's too many of them believe that when there are some problems, it's always outside of ourselves, and it's always something in the environment or whatever. And and in in me, I often think that I'm I'm I got more of the problems inside, and uh, that there are some kind of dialectical discussions or polarized uh, <laughs> experience. And I, I think those 
dualities uh, are, are really existing in us, in, in our in our uh, way of being. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think that duality can mean two things. It can mean that there are simply that there are different uh, levels or dimensions of phenomena, uh, which I think as such is not polarizing, because I, I think this is this whole theme of Athens and Jerusalem actually uh, refers to a duality which we are trying to find ways of bringing together so that there, there would be like two different approaches that are complementary but we cannot say that there aren't different approaches and and I think mm -hmm. the same thing like the the mind and the brain uh, could be seen as dualistic but not necessarily dichotomic dichotomous in the sense that they are somehow against each other or, or excluding each other but rather uh, uh, completing each other I don't know how you would buy mm. that Steve yeah the maybe there's maybe we can think of um, dualism as a very useful heuristic you know it's a very useful way of navigating the world uh, and um, and the world really is divided at some level. It really is mind and matter. There really is hardware and software. I mean, DNA really is both a chemical and an information carrying object. You know, so there, so dualism is not just a figment of our imagination. At the same time, it, when we seek to sort of the ultimate explanations of things, which, you know, maybe, a, I don't know, a, the kind of um, investigation that not everyone has to do. I mean, it's a it's something that you know privileged people who have the the time and the you know uh, to to do to ask these sorts of questions want to know well what is the ultimate explanation? Uh, that's where the the current explanation that that the scientific project offers us is that everything ultimately reduces to this one thing, which is matter and mechanism and a kind of the deterministic laws of physics. And another direction we could go is to see mind and matter and, and the dualism which is manifest in the world as reducible to something else, not, not reducible to, to, to mechanism uh, and, and inert matter, but reducible to something which is more of a mutuality of consciousness and matter emerging simultaneously. And, and this is where one can't not at least reference the 20th century developments in, in quantum mechanics, which, um, which I think suggest it precisely this, you know, that there's a mutuality of what we could call you know, matter and information, or, or uh, you know, or spirit and body, or or you know, pick your pick your um, your your dualistic phrases, um, but that both somehow kind of emerge together, because in the end, isn't it, isn't it more satisfying to posit a single origin for things than two separate origins for things? Absolutely, and I think, and I, I was very good that you take up this point of origin because I think it's not so much obviously um, well not obviously but anyway I, I think that we could well think that the universe is actually a sort of a 
unified uh, phenomenon uh, where there is essential unity uh, and definitely an origin of things. But but uh, I think this duality is more on the level of the, so say, the manifestation of that that uh, original power or or impulse or whatever. And uh, and maybe it's it's. Maybe it's a little bit like you know the phenomenon of light that we have you know we have light that that can be seen as a spectrum of different colors, but that then in the end when they come together there is only really just light and and uh, as you said uh, the the spectrum is a heuristic device mm -hmm. more than anything else. We could also invoke the you know the wisdom of the Far East in this in the opening in the opening verses of the Tao Te Ching. You know th that there's a kind of a oneness that precedes everything, and from the one emerges the two, and then from the two emerges all things. And so you have both the idea of primal unity, but also the idea of a almost primal duality of things. Of course, represented in the yin yang single uh, symbol that everyone is familiar with, and then the du the interaction of the of the polarity of that duality then gives rise to all things. Somehow we we want to have our cake and eat it too, you know. We want to we want to be able to to sort of admit that that mind is a thing, consciousness is a thing, not reducible to matter, but at the but at the same time, um, we uh, we we do want to we do want there to be a a sort of a unified origin to things, um, because I I suppose because maybe that's a philosophical bias. That you know, we want there to be a single origin to thing and uh, things instead of two, instead of a, a double origin to things, and, and perhaps we should just, you know, just go out and say it. This is a philosophical bias that that some of us have that that we want to have a, a simple explanation rather than a complex explanation. Given that the universe is complex, why should we? Why should that you know that philosophical bias necessarily be true? Having said that, I, I'm still firmly in the camp that there that there ought to be a single origin to things, but we should at least put on the table that there are other ways of of thinking about it. Right. So maybe next time we can pursue this theme, especially through the phenomenon of human consciousness that was referred to, because I think that that might be mm -hmm. uh, a place where we can uh, get further ideas and notions of this yeah uh, uh, yeah and I, I think we just need to know more what what do we understand by human consciousness mm. exactly so okay. we could stop right. there just a question because just for the for the listener for us also is is it is it legal is it normal to to talk about the soul do do people nowadays say that they have a soul or is it is it something that belongs to history? Mm. I I think many people use the word soul. I mean, I I don't think they always even use it in the most metaphysical sense. But yeah, I think when when people want to refer to something which is a bit more refined than just just uh, cognitive or calculated uh, behavior, they they talk about the soul. It, it's nice to hear, Cameron. Even yeah. in in Sweden, <laughs> even in yeah in Sweden more and more yeah. <laughs> I, 
I, I think soul is much easier for people to accept than God and religion. So yeah, yeah. So that's why we might we might go for yeah human. I, I think that's why it's 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 actually very fruitful if we focus on things like human consciousness or even terms like soul and mind to to way to find our way forward through those. Yeah, agree. So then we end this uh, session and then we see you again later. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Athens and Jerusalem, created by Cameron Namdar, Stephen Phelps and Knut Ovese. Nora Juli's technical support. Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interviewed with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.